Welcome back, friends. Bill Creasy here with Wednesday's episode of Scripture Uncovered. So, a reminder once again, I gave you this notice on Monday, and memberships came rolling in after Monday. Memberships into LogosBibleStudy.com and all the content present. 22 university-level courses on the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, verse by verse, book by book, 22 university-level courses, 450 videos, and a ton of support material. So make sure you go to LogosBibleStudy.com, sign up, and for you, my podcast listeners, type in the coupon code SCRIPTURE, S-C-R-I-P-T-U-R-E, and your first month will be free. And hey, it's only $19.95 a month for a ton of unlimited content and live interaction with me and your fellow Logo students during our office hours and on discussion groups. I look forward to seeing you there and saying hello to you in person right there on Zoom, right on the screen with each other. Okay, back now we go to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes, Solomon's last will and testament. Solomon's last words on his life. We saw that Ecclesiastes is framed by that existential cry into the void. Meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. It's a cry that echoes throughout the entire book. And you may have noticed in the autobiographical introduction that God is not mentioned, not even once. He plays no role whatever in framing Solomon's thoughts. God's mentioned for the first time, however, after that autobiographical introduction, but he's mentioned as Elohim, not the intimate covenant God of Yahweh, Elohim. As Solomon views him, God is deeply unsettling. I, Quoheleth, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my mind to search and investigate in wisdom all things that are done under the sun. A bad business God, Elohim, has given to human beings to be busied with. What a mean trick to play, says Solomon. In the Hebrew scriptures, God can often be violent, vindictive, and harsh. But he always means humanity well. He's a covenant God, one who has a destiny in mind for his often unruly and rebellious children. God's relationship with his people moves toward a goal, the redemption of all of humanity. In the New Testament, that goal is eschatological, that is, outside of time and space, no less than eternity in the very presence of a transcendent God. But there's none of that in Ecclesiastes. Here, God, Elohim, sets the wheels in motion, placing humanity on a stage trapped in a dizzying world of continual frustration and illusion. A world that ends not with a bang, but a whimper. A silent home amidst clods of dirt in the grave. 
Solomon doesn't deny God in Ecclesiastes, but he does identify God strongly with fate, with the world as it must be, with a world in which we walk across the stage of life trying to make sense of it all, and we exit scratching our heads and wondering what the point of it all was. Solomon strives mightily to define purpose, to make sense of our brief moment in the spotlight. The main body of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's musings on life. He's a philosopher, one who probes into this corner of the stage and that, seeking meaning and seeking understanding. For him, piety is an illusion, religion, a hall of mirrors. There's no clear structure to the interior of Ecclesiastes. Rather, Solomon wanders freely from this to that, sometimes with penetrating insight, sometimes with contradictions, and sometimes just wandering down blind alleys. Have a look. I, Quoheleth, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my mind to search and investigate in wisdom all things that are done under the sun. A bad business God has given to human beings to be busied with. I, I have seen all things that are done under the sun, and behold, all is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and you cannot count what is not there. Though I said to myself, see, look, I have greatly increased my wisdom beyond all who were before me in Jerusalem, and my mind has broad experience of wisdom and knowledge. Yet, when I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly, I learned that this, too, is a chasing after the wind. For in much wisdom there is much sorrow, Whoever increases knowledge increases grief. Huh. So the more we know, the less we know. The deeper we penetrate, the darker it becomes. Knowledge, doth, or Greek, gnosis, the understanding of information, wisdom is the proper application and use of knowledge. In Solomon's mind, with knowledge comes grief, and with wisdom comes sorrow, and the more you know, the deeper you know it, the bleaker the world looks. So I said in my heart, come now, let me try you with pleasure and the enjoyment of good things. But this too was meaningless. Of laughter, I said, madness. And of mirth, what good does it do? Guided by wisdom, I probed with my mind how to beguile my senses with wine and take up folly until I should understand what is good for human beings to do under the heavens during the miserably few short days of their lives. So if knowledge and wisdom didn't work for Solomon... How about pleasure? Good food, good wine, abundant laughter. But Quoheleth, Solomon, 
says, laughter is madness. Elongated faces contorted with high-pitched cackling. <laughs> I've been to parties like that. I can't wait to get home. <laughs> so I undertook great projects. I built myself houses and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks. And in them, I set up fruit trees of all sorts. And I constructed for myself reservoirs to water a flourishing woodland. I acquired male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also owned vast herds of cattle and flocks of sheep, more than all who had been before me in Jerusalem. I amassed for myself silver and gold and the treasures of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers, the entire Mormon tabernacle choir, the delights of men, and many, many women. I accumulated much more than all others before me in Jerusalem. My wisdom, too, stayed with me. Nothing that my eyes desired did I deny them, nor did I deprive myself of any joy. Rather, my heart rejoiced in the fruit of my toil. I loved my work. This was my share for all my toil. But when I turned to all the works that my hands had wrought, and to the fruit of the toil for which I had toiled so much, Behold, all was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. There is no profit under the sun. And what about the one who succeeds the king? He can do only what has already been done. I've already done everything. I've done it all. So Solomon, engaged in vast building projects, the temple, his palace, which was twice the size of the temple, his summer palace made of cedars from Lebanon, gardens and groves, servants by the hundreds. And all of it was utterly meaningless. And that reminds me of the greatest movie ever made, Citizen Kane. Orson Welles and Ruth Warwick, in the beautiful breakfast montage of Citizen Kane, he has everything. And amidst it all, as he's seated with his wife at a lengthy table laid out with breakfast foods, he's thinking to himself, Rosebud, Rosebud. And we learn at the end of Citizen Kane that Rosebud was a sled that he had as a little child. If we put this into the context of Solomon, with everything he's had at the very end of his life, he thinks, Abishag, Abishag. The one thing, the one person, the one woman, the beautiful young girl whom he truly loved back in his youth. So he continues, I went on to consider wisdom and madness and folly. 
and I saw that wisdom has much profit over folly as light has over darkness. Wise people have eyes in their heads, but fools walk in darkness. Yet I knew that the same lot befalls both. So I said in my heart, if the fool's lot is to befall me also, why should I be wise? Where's the profit? And in my heart, I decided this too is meaningless. The wise person will have no more abiding remembrance than the fool. For in the days to come, both will have been forgotten. How is it that the wise person dies like the fool? Therefore, I detested life. Since for me, the work that is done under the sun is evil, for all is meaningless. Meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So wisdom, madness, and folly. The same fate befalls the wise, the mad, and the fool. None of them will be remembered. So what's the point? Life itself is madness, a chasing after the wind. It all comes to nothing. I, I detested all the fruits of my toil under the sun, because I must leave them to the one who is to come after me. My knuckle-headed son, Rehoboam. And who knows whether that one will be a wise man or a fool. Well, it turned out he was a fool. He lost the entire kingdom. Yet that one will take control of all the fruits of my work and wisdom under the sun. This is meaningless. So my heart turned to despair over all the fruits of my work under the sun. For here is one who has worked with wisdom and knowledge and skill, and that one's legacy must be left to another who has not worked for it. This is meaningless and a great evil. For what profit comes to mortals from all the work and anxiety of heart with which they toil under the sun? Every day, sorrow and grief are their occupation. Even at night, their hearts are not at rest. This, this is meaningless. Now that's the one that really gets my goat. I work my butt off building a business, a beautiful home, investing in real estate, acquiring blue chip stock portfolio, creating intellectual property, patents and trademarks. And then when I die, I have to leave it all to my idiot relatives who haven't lifted a finger to deserve it. <laughs> they win the genetic lottery. How many people have said that? There is nothing better for mortals than to eat and drink and provide themselves with good things from their work. Even this, I saw, is from the hand of God. For who can eat or drink apart from God? For to the one who pleases God, he gives wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the one who displeases, God gives the task of gathering possessions for the one who pleases God. <laughs> this also is meaningless, a, a chasing after the wind. 
There's an appointed time for everything and a time for every affair under heaven, a time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot the plant, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, a time to scatter stones, a time to gather them, a time to embrace, and a time to be far from embraces, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to rend and a time to sow, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. Now, this is perhaps the best-known section of Ecclesiastes. Pete Seeger turned it into a popular song in the late 1950s, and the Birds made it a massive hit in 1965, reaching number one on the Billboard Hot 100 on December 4th, 1965. I remember the day. I was a senior in high school. It consists of 14 statements, each paired with its opposite. A time to give birth, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot, a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down, a time to build. The repetition of a time to in each line is called anaphora. It's poetic technique. It's a beautiful poem in its own right. But the second half suddenly kicks the legs out from under the first half. The sound repetition and the lilting rhythm lead the reader or the listener into pleasant thoughts about everything having its time and place. But then, what profit have workers from their toil, asks Solomon. I have seen the business that God has given to mortals to be busied about. God has made everything appropriate to its time but has put timelessness into their hearts so they cannot find out from beginning to end the work which God has done. God's put into our heart a yearning for eternity, but we end up a rotting corpse in a grave. So what good is it? Giving birth, dying, planting, uprooting, killing, healing, tearing down, building. It's all the same. God has made a time for all those things, but they all just go around and around and around in circles like a dog chasing its tail. Nothing is accomplished. What is now will fade away. What, will be ag what was will be again. And round and round it goes. So Solomon continues, I recognized that there is nothing better than to rejoice and to do well during life. Moreover, that all can eat and drink and enjoy the good of all their toil. This is a gift of God. I recognize that whatever God does will endure forever. There's no adding to it or taking from it. Thus has God done that he may be revered. God did all these things so we can turn and praise him. So what is now has already been, what is to be, already is. God retrieves what has gone by. 
At least we can enjoy eating and drinking. But that too is at the whim of God, who enables us to do so, when he desires to do so. Or not. Round and round and round it goes. And I'm tempted to add, and where it stops, nobody knows. But it doesn't stop. And the message is bleak. Listen to Solomon. And still under the sun in the judgment place I saw wickedness, and wickedness also in the seat of justice. I said in my heart, both the just and the wicked God will judge, since a time is set for every affair and every work. I said in my heart, as for human beings, it is God's way of testing them and of showing that they are in themselves like beasts, like animals. For the lot of mortals and the lot of beasts is the very same lot. The one dies as well as the other. Both have the same life breath. Human beings have no advantage over beasts. All of it is meaningless. Both go to the same place. Both were made from the dust, and to the dust they both return. And who knows if the life breath of mortals goes upward and the life breath of beasts goes downward. And I saw that there is nothing better for mortals than to rejoice in their work. For this is their lot. They're going to work, so they might as well like it. Who will let them see what is to come after them? Oh my gosh. Quahalith, Solomon, observes that injustice reigns where justice should. In the court of law, everything is topsy-turvy. Indeed, we may be better off dead, for that would end the frustrating cycle. In the end, we simply molder in the grave, no better off than dead animals. Quahalith, Solomon, sees God, Elohim, as indifferent to human joy or suffering, and he certainly doesn't see in death an afterlife. We simply rot in the ground. With all of this, you have to wonder how Ecclesiastes ended up in the canon of the Hebrew Scriptures. And that is a really good question to ponder. The word canon, C-A-N-O-N, derives from the Greek kanon, a measuring rod or a standard. In a society, for example, a canon is a set of standards considered to be cultural norms, the rules, if you will, by which a society of any type, civil, professional, or religious, functions. The formation of a society's canon, be it oral or written, is a cultural phenomenon, a natural societal process. For much of human history, a group's values, ideals, and normative behavior were defined, expressed, and passed on from one generation to the next through story, ritual, and behaviors that were either praised or condemned. Over time, such stories, rituals, and behaviors took on form and shape, gradually becoming a group's moral, ethical, and religious foundation. 
a foundation that expressed the group's core values and norms, a foundation upon which a society was built. The ancient Greek culture is a perfect example, and Homer's Iliad serves as its best paradigm. We noted the Iliad at the beginning of these podcasts on Ecclesiastes. The Iliad tells the tale of the Trojan War, a 10-year siege on the city of Troy by the Achaeans, a coalition of Greek states led by Agamemnon, king of Mycenae. Traditionally, the Trojan War took place 1184 to 1175 BC, consistent with the burning of Troy 7 at the archaeological site of Hismarik in western Turkey. We've visited there many a time, and I've had the true privilege of teaching portions of the Iliad on site at Troy. For many centuries, readers assumed that Homer wrote the Iliad shortly after the Trojan War. But in fact, as Harvard classic scholar Milman Perry demonstrated in the 1920s, the poem was first composed and performed orally until the 8th century BC, when it was finally written down. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey served as the most influential canon for educated Greek speakers of the Hellenistic world, along with the works of Euripides, Menander, Demosthenes, of Hesiod, Pindar, Sappho, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Aristophanes, Herodotus, Thrasydides, and Aesop all serving as prime examples of the genres and basic modes of cultural life, philosophy, epic, drama, poetry, and history. Not a religious canon, to be sure, but the works of these authors expressed, and one might even say enshrined, the fundamental values of Greek society and culture for hundreds of years. Importantly, a canon does not come into being because it's declared from on high. No one can declare a work canonical if it has no canonical pedigree. One can only affirm a work's canonical status because it's already been accepted as canonical by consensus. It would be naive and simply incorrect to think that there was any normative body within Second Temple Judaism, 516 BC to AD 70, that made universal proclamations regarding what books were included in the Hebrew Scriptures. In Jesus' day, and throughout the 2nd and 3rd centuries AD, there were hundreds of synagogues scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and there was no single governing body overseeing their operation. Consequently, there was a great deal of latitude in what one community viewed as Scripture versus what another community viewed as Scripture. So an Old Testament canon did not begin to emerge until we move into the second century AD. In Jesus' day, it was much more amorphous. So if, in fact, only in the second through fifth centuries in Palestine, the third through seventh in Persian Mesopotamia, and the early Middle Ages in the Mediterranean world, and in Europe, well, only then did a cohesive, unified, and somewhat authoritative voice emerge regarding the Jewish canon of Scripture. Which brings us back to Ecclesiastes, written sometime in the early to mid-4th century BC, not by Solomon, but in the voice of Solomon, the ipsissima vox of Solomon. 
it began making its way into the canon early. In fact, fragments of Ecclesiastes have been found among the Dead Sea Scrolls, in K4, for example. And the fragments include Ecclesiastes 5 and a number of verses all the way through. That scroll was copied between 30 BC and AD 68. So Ecclesiastes was being read and perhaps regarded as canonical during the time of Jesus. But that still doesn't answer the question, why did Ecclesiastes become part of scriptural canon? Like the author of Job, the author of Ecclesiastes doesn't accept the pat, pious answers to life's difficult questions offered by religion and tradition. No, he strikes out into unexplored or at least unvoiced territory. Ecclesiastes is one of the most original and radical texts produced in its day. And just as today, pious people attempt to tame Ecclesiastes, regarding it as allegory or distorting its plain words to fit their denominational beliefs, so there must have been people doing the very same thing during the Second Temple period. But others embraced Ecclesiastes in spite of, or perhaps because of, its radical, unblinking, and unorthodox insight into the broken human condition. Some tried to tame it, to chain it to an orthodox past or feed it kibbles. Perhaps that explains its pious postscript. Besides being wise, back to Ecclesiastes, Quahalith, Solomon, taught the people knowledge and weighed, scrutinized, and arranged many proverbs. Quahalith sought to find appropriate sayings and to write down true sayings with precision. The sayings of the wise are like goads, like fixed spikes are the collected sayings given by one shepherd. As to more than these, my son, beware. Of the making of many books, there is no end. And in much study, there is weariness for the flesh. The last word, when all is heard, fear God, keep his commandments, for this concerns all humankind, because God will bring to judgment every work with all its hidden qualities, whether good or bad. But Ecclesiastes refused to be domesticated even today, it roams the canon of Scripture, untamed, refusing to heal, challenging our piety. We cannot pet it. We cannot embrace it. We can only wrestle with it. So there we have it. Ecclesiastes, Solomon's Last Will and Testament. Let me remind you in closing that... Uh, if you go to LogosBibleStudy.com, become a member of LogosBibleStudy.com, a Logos student, $19.95 a month, pit, a pittance for massive amounts of material. Use the coupon code SCRIPTURE, and the first month 
is free. I ran this a little long on this podcast. I thought rather than break it up and finish it on Friday, I would push on through and get done today. So Friday, we'll be back with another topic. I've got to think about what that might be. Okay, folks, good being with you. I'll see you on Friday. Bye-bye now.